Uh, it's good to be back. Uh, a few people have asked me just to kind of give a, just how Dr. Stan Fowler's been doing. Um, so, I mean, he's getting stronger. I, like, I have not talked to him uh, of late. Uh, I did visit him when he, they moved, they had to move from Kitchener to Cambridge, and God provided them with a really nice, nice home for that. Uh, he still is unable to talk. So mentally, he's all there, but he still can't get it out. Um, <clears throat> and he still has some uh, mobility issues as well. Um, so, but I mean, his spirits, from what I understand, are still up. Good. But uh, please continue to pray for him. Pray for Donna, his wife, because um, like that's a big, unexpected deal in terms of having to care for your spouse in that way. So just pray for strength for her, encouragement for her, uh, as well as uh, in addition to praying for, uh, for healing for Stan, because we'd love to see him back up and being able to teach, whether he's preaching here or teaching in the classroom, that would be an awesome thing. So um, I'm sure they covered your prayers. Thank you for that. Well, if it doesn't happen uh, at Christmas time, it typically happens at Easter. Uh, Time magazine, that famous US periodical, they'll run uh, a cover story. And on the cover of the story, on the cover of the magazine, there will be a, an artist's rendition of Jesus. And then there'll be like some snazzy cover title, like um, Who Was Jesus? Or Jesus at 2000. The search for Jesus, the Jesus revolution, why did Jesus have to die, something like that. And then when you go to the, the story in the middle of the magazine, uh, like the assumption is that this person of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, remains a largely misunderstood person. And uh, while that might be the case for non-Christians, for unbelievers, for people who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ personally, um, there is a person who is, I would argue, even more misunderstood and not just outside the confines of the local church, but even within the confines of the local church, and that would be the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit remains largely misunderstood, at least in some segments of Christendom, some segments of the church, some segments of the evangelical church. And there's all kinds of evidences of that. Let me just give you one. Uh, numerous times I've talked to people, talked to Christians, and they will just kind of in a matter-of-fact way refer to the Holy Spirit as an it. It is so powerful. When it moves you, you can move mountains. It, which on the face of it, that would be like calling the God of the universe, our Redeemer, an it. The Holy Spirit is a misunderstood person. 60 years ago, approximately, A.W. Tozer, who's written many books, Knowledge of the Holy, a book which I enjoyed reading back in the day. Uh, he pastored in Chicago, pastored in Toronto, uh, Alliance churches. So 60 years ago, Tozer wrote this. Tozer said, he said that in the days of the early church, if the Holy Spirit were to suddenly withdraw, just suddenly remove himself from the early church, 95% of what was going on would cease 
immediately and virtually everybody would sense their loss. But today, Tozer writes, today, if the Holy Spirit were to suddenly withdraw from the church, 95% of what's going on would continue and hardly anybody would recognize their loss. Tozer wrote that 60 years ago. I would contend that if it was true 60 years ago, it's even truer today. The Holy Spirit is the forgotten member of the Trinity, but he's such a vital member of the Trinity. We talk about growth as a Christian, right? Christians are supposed to grow. We are to grow in our sanctification, our Christ-likeness, you know, becoming more like Jesus. Well, that can't happen apart from the Holy Spirit. Like, we don't grow in godliness. Uh, that's not something we do for God. That's something God works in us through his Holy Spirit as his Holy Spirit works deeply inside our hearts and changes us from the inside out. The mission to spread the gospel to the world, that mandate is absolutely impossible to accomplish apart from the Holy Spirit. Because, and I have to be careful how I say this, like the resurrection of Jesus isn't enough. How do I know that? Well, in John's gospel, towards the end of John's gospel, the disciples, they've seen Jesus. Jesus is alive. They know it. They've seen him. They've touched him. He's alive. The Lord is alive. Where are they? Post-resurrection, a week or two after the resurrection, after they've seen Jesus, where are they? Well, John, the narrator, tells us that the disciples were locked up behind closed doors. They've locked themselves in. They've barricaded themselves in behind closed doors. Why? For fear of the Jews. Wait, Jesus is alive. We've seen him. We've touched him. He's alive. We've heard him. The Lord is alive. Where are they? They're petrified because of the Jews. Flip over to the book of Acts, the next book, Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit comes down, empowers them. Where are they now? Those same Jews that they were petrified of, they're preaching the gospel. That's the difference that the Holy Spirit makes. The mandate to reach the world can only be accomplished through the power of the Holy Spirit. So this morning, uh, last week was in the church calendar, was Pentecost Sunday. Um, so I thought I would just share this morning on the Holy Spirit. And uh, typically, I preach here, I, I like to take one text and kind of drill down into that text. But this morning, it's going to be a little bit different. I'm just going to hop around to different texts. Old Testament, New Testament, and uh, you can follow me or you can just write down those scripture verses. I'll give you time to write them down and then later on this week you can go back to them and meditate on them, reflect on them, and consider them. Uh, so before we continue, please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we want to pause and invite your Holy Spirit to uh, move through the word that he is inspired uh, to speak to each one of us according to our need as you see our need, as you know our need. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to respond to what your spirit would say to us. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So the Holy Spirit, who is he? Who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is God. He's God. He's God. How do I know he's God? Because for starters, he's called God. He's called God. Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. So in Acts, there's this Acts, early part of Acts, there's this tremendous 
revival going on, and uh, so much so that people's lives are changing, and so uh, the, disi- the disciples, the believers are bringing their, uh, their money and their proceeds that the, from sales, and they're bringing them to the apostles so that the apostles can now distribute the proceeds according to who has need. And so there's this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. They're disciples. They're believers. They sell some property that they have. They take the money from that sale, and they bring it to the apostle Peter. So here's the money, Peter. Problem is that they're lying about the amount of money. Because Peter's, what happens is they've sold the money for, let's say, they've sold the property for, let's say, $400,000, let's just say, in modern terms. They come to Peter and say, here's the money that we got for the sale of property, $75,000. And Peter rebukes them. He says, the money was yours. You could do with it whatever you want. But don't lie. Don't lie. Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to men. You have lied to God. The Holy Spirit is God. You're lying to the Holy Spirit. You're lying to God. See, the Bible, the scriptures presuppose monotheism. Right? The writers of Scripture, they are monotheists. There's only one God that exists. One God that exists, according to the writers of the Bible. The God of Israel, Yahweh, as he's called. There's one God. And when the Bible, the, the Old Testament writers talk about other gods, the gods of the Egyptians and Canaanites, they're not real. And they know they're not real. Just because they mention them doesn't mean they believe in them. In fact, Isaiah and Jeremiah and the psalmist will mock them. These gods that you worship, they have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have a mouth, but they can't talk, because they're nothing. They're just dumb idols. They don't exist. There's only one God that exists. Only one God that exists. And that one God exists in three persons. Father, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. Yes, the word Trinity doesn't, it's not mentioned in Scripture, just like bathroom is not mentioned in Scripture. But the content of the doctrine is everywhere. There's one God, but yet the Father is called God. The Son, Jesus, is called God. The Holy Spirit is called God. In fact, not only is he called God, he shares the same name as God. The Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of of the Father and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Notice, in the name, your translations, it's singular, name, not names. Name, singular, it should be singular because the Greek is singular because they share the one name, the divine name, Yahweh, which in your English translations in the Old Testament, it's Lord in block caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord, that's the divine name that nobody else has. But the Father shares it with the Son. The Son shares it with the Spirit. The Spirit shares it with the Father. They share the same name. The Holy Spirit is God. He's God because he lives in unique relationship to Jesus the Son. So in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 1, verse 35, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary, and he is going to tell Mary what's going to happen within her womb. And so the angel says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary, And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So 
the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary and the virgin conceives such that the offspring born to Mary is the Son of God. There's this unique relationship between the Holy Spirit and Jesus. And we see that again in Acts chapter 16. Verses 6 and 7 of Acts 16, Paul is on his missionary journey. And Luke writes, Paul and his companions travel throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they come to the board of Mysia, they try to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. The Holy Spirit prevents them. The Spirit of Jesus prevents them. There's this unique relationship that exists within the Trinity, between the members of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are distinct. They're not the same. Right? A horrible analogy for the Trinity, uh, which people sometimes use, but it's a horrible analogy, is something like this, that you have me, Wayne Baxter. I am uh, a son to my father. I am a husband to my wife, and I am a father to my children. That's a horrible analogy um, because that leads to the heresy of modalism, which denies the Trinity. Because um, if that's the case, then at Jesus' baptism, for example, uh, he, he was talking to himself because he prays. So he's talking to himself. And he throws his voice because the voice, God the Father, speaks to him. This is my son. So he has to throw his voice if that's the case. No, no, no. It's, that's a horrible analogy. You have one God who coexists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they're intimately, intricately related, but they're distinct. But they're a God. They're all God. So the Holy Spirit is God. He's one member of the Godhead, of the Trinity. What does he do? What does the Holy Spirit do? Well, the Holy Spirit is actively involved in creation. Right? He's actively involved in creation. He created the universe. You open up your Bibles to the first book of the Bible, the first verse, verses of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and it was so, and God said, and it was so, and God said, and it was cold. So you have this creation. Where's the Holy Spirit? He's hovering over the waters. And the Hebrew word for hovering is only used one other time uh, in those first five, the books of Moses. And in Deuteronomy, it describes uh, an eagle who's hovering over the nest, stirring up the nest, getting the rest, the, the nest ready, right? It's very active, the eagle is. Well, the Holy Spirit is actively creating. He's an active agent in creation. So in John's gospel, John says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh, so the word is Jesus, obviously. So verse 3, all things came into existence through him, through the word, and nothing has come into existence that has come into existence apart from the word. So Jesus is the creator. Yeah, but Jesus creates through the agency of the third person of the Trinity. They're all involved 
in creation, but Jesus, the word, creates through agency, the agency of the third person of the Trinity. So the Holy Spirit, he's actively involved in creation. He created the universe. He creates individual life forms, like plants and animals. Psalm 104, verses 24 and 30. How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. When you send your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. So the spirit creates plants and animals. He creates human beings, like you, like me. Job 33, verse 4. The spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. So Psalm 139, which we open the service with, that talks about how we are fearfully and wonderfully made, knitted together before we were ever born. That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit knits you together, gave your eye color, gave you your hair texture, your skin pigmentation. He gave you all of that. The Spirit creates all things big, all things little. He's the creator of all life forms. And he doesn't just simply create he even recreates Christians, Titus chapter 3, verse 5. God saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us through Jesus our Savior. That rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Right? When we talk about Christians being born again, we are recreated on the inside. Right? When you place your faith in Jesus, you repent of your sins, place your faith in Jesus, something you celebrate at the Lord's Supper, God gives you a brand new heart. A brand new heart. He writes his laws, his laws, his word on your heart, and then he implants into your recreated brand new heart the Holy Spirit who lives inside you, which is why Paul says you're a temple. Because God, the Holy Spirit, lives inside you. God dwelt in the temple in the Old Testament. Now he lives inside you, making you a temple. Right? So that rebirth, that recreation, God creates, the Holy Spirit creates, he recreates. That's what he does. There's all kinds of things, other things that he does. I'll just leave it at there. I don't want you here all day or all night. Uh, so what's he like? What is he like, the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit is personal. He's personal. He is not an impersonal force, right? If you talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, they will tell you, oh, no, the Holy Spirit is an impersonal force, like electricity, you know, or like the sun, S-U-N, like the sun. He's just a, it's just an impersonal force that emanates from God, from Jehovah God. No, 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 the Holy Spirit is personal. He is not an impersonal force like fire, like electricity, like my shadow. He is a person. He is personal. How do we know that? I'll give you a few reasons why we know that. For starters, we know that he's personal because he has a mind. Electricity has no mind. Fire has no mind. My shadow has no mind. He has a mind. How do we know that? Romans 8, 27. He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit. The Spirit has a mind. He's rational. He thinks part of what it means to be made in God's image is that we are rational beings. We have a mind. We think. We're rational beings. We know the Holy Spirit is personal because he has emotions. 
He doesn't just think, he feels. The prophet Micah asked this question, is the, is the spirit of the Lord angry? Is he angry, the spirit? Like when fire is raging through Alberta, it's not because it's mad. It's a thing. Wreaking devastation, absolutely. It's not mad. It's not having a temper tantrum. It's just a thing. But the Holy Spirit is not impersonal. He's personal. He thinks. He feels. He has emotions. What makes him angry? Is the Spirit of the Lord angry? Well, if you read Micah, sin makes the Spirit angry. Sin makes the Spirit angry. When Jesus was in the temple and the temple had been corrupted and just become like this gaming casino, we read that Jesus starts overturning tables. Do you think Jesus was really gleeful? Just real having fun. Oh, this is fun. Let me just turn this over. Do you think that was the emotion that he was feeling? Or do you think he was like Spock or Data, Star Trek, just nothing? No, no, no. I'm pretty sure he was mad, angry, mad, righteous indignation, righteous anger. The Holy Spirit has emotions. He gets angry. Paul says that he can also uh, experience grief. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. We can make him sad. What grieves the Holy Spirit? Well, if you read the verses around Ephesians 4.30, Paul tells us that it's sin, right? Some, he, he talks about lying, Paul does. In, in and around Ephesians 4.30. Excessive anger. Tearing people down through criticism. That grieves the Holy Spirit. Bitterness grieves the Holy Spirit. Slander grieves the Holy Spirit. Unkindness grieves the Holy Spirit. Sexual immorality grieves the Holy Spirit. Obscene jokes grieve the Holy Spirit. Greed. Greed is good. That's what the dude said on the movie. No, greed grieves the Holy Spirit. And in grieving the Holy Spirit, we actually short-circuit his, his power in our lives, right? If we think, we, we know, you know, we talk about ourselves being vessels and channels, okay? So if we consider ourselves like a pipe and we're a vessel for God's power to like extend to other people, but if that pipe gets clogged through unconfessed sin, through unrepented of sin, it gets clogged and and it doesn't flow as much as much and gets all, hardly anything comes out because of unconfessed sin, because of unrepentant sin. Through uh, making the Holy Spirit angry and, and grieving the Holy Spirit. He has emotions. He has thoughts. He has emotions. Uh, he's personal because he communicates. The Holy Spirit communicates. On the one hand, he communicates for us, like on our behalf. Kind of cool going back to Romans 8, verse 27. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. The Holy Spirit communicates for us on our behalf to God, to the Godhead, when we don't know how to pray. And so he communicates on our behalf so that we communicate prayers that align with God's will. 
So he communicates on our behalf. That's really cool. Uh, but not only does he communicate for us, but he communicates with us. He communicates with us. How does he communicate with us, the Holy Spirit? Well, generally speaking, he communicates with us through the scriptures. So, for example, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20, 21. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its will, it never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This book, the book that you're holding in your hand, whether it's an electronic version on your phone or hard copy version, like it's inspired, like it's divinely revealed. And then the Holy Spirit came upon Matthew and David and Moses and John and Peter and James, came upon this different psalmist to write down his words. So if you want to know what God has to say, what God the Holy Spirit has to say, open up the word that he himself has inspired, that he is inspired. And spend time seeking him and listening to him. What do you have to say? And, and, and to read it, not, not to read it like, you know, four minutes here, three minutes there, you know, reading it like a horoscope or something like that, but reading it as what it is. It is the word of God. And spending time in God's word, reflecting on God's word. He communicates with us through the scriptures. But in addition to the scriptures, he, he speaks specifically through what uh, I believe it's First Kings describes as the still, small voice, right? That still, small voice. So Acts chapter 8, there's this tremendous revival going on. The Samaritans are coming to faith in Jesus. That's a big deal because Samaritans and Judeans were at enmity for centuries, and so for Samaritans now to come to faith and through the apostles and Philip to become united with the Judeans, that would be like the Black Panthers of the 60s becoming united with the Klansmen and the neo-Nazis and they're coming one. That's what that is. Like, wow. So there's this tremendous revival going on. And Philip, who's really the human agent behind it, who's leading the way, an angel appears to Philip the deacon, Philip the evangelist, and says, leave this place and go to that deserted road over there. So this, it's not because the revival's done. It's not done. It's still popping. It's still carrying on. That's where the action's at. But the angel says, it's time for you to leave now. So, and that's what the text says. An angel tells him to do this. So he leaves where everything is happening. Souls are being saved and won and signs and wonders, all that stuff. He goes to this deserted road near Gaza. Deserted road. And then in Acts chapter 8, verse 29, the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. So he leaves this happening place, goes to this deserted road, and it's, it's nobody's around except, oh, there's a chariot. And so it says, verse 29, the spirit told Philip. So an angel before that, now it's the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. So he jogs over the chariot, he's kind of near it, maybe behind it, and he overhears this Ethiopian eunuch, so that means this Ethiopian is a convert to Judaism, and as a convert and a practitioner of Judaism, 
he has a scroll. He has a scripture scroll, the scripture scroll of Isaiah. And he's reading out loud Isaiah 53. And Philip, when he hears this, as he's jogging, he's like, talk about being set up on a tee. And so he just says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, well, how can I? I need somebody to explain it. And so Philip says, hey, good luck with that. And he jogs off. Now, that's what I would have done. Philip's not like that. Philip climbs up into the chariot, and he leads the man to faith in Jesus. And then he's baptized, and then he goes off, and he evangelized. According to church history, that Ethiopian eunuch began to evangelize Ethiopia. The Spirit told Philip, go to that, ch- that chariot and stay near it. How was it that the Holy Spirit communicated that to Philip? The simple answer is we don't know, right? It doesn't say how the Spirit communicated that to Philip. Was it an audible voice? Was it an inaudible voice? Was it an open vision? Like, we don't know. I think that it was simply what I call like a faith-filled feeling, a holy hunch, that he goes to this deserted road, he knows from an angel, go to this deserted road, and there's like, it's a deserted road, like nobody's there except that chariot. I guess the Spirit's telling me, okay, I need to go to that chariot. That's just what I think. I don't know for sure, because it doesn't say how he communicated that. But I think it was just a still, small voice. Oh, I guess I need to like go to whoever's in that chariot. I remember years ago, I was speaking at a college and career retreat in Montreal, and they'd asked me to speak on prayer. And so there's four messages on prayer, and so each message I was obviously talking about prayer. So then at the final session, the Sunday morning session, and I was sitting at the, at the back of the chapel, so everybody's back was to me. And uh, while we were worshiping, um, I just got this faith-filled feeling, this holy hunch that God wanted me, the Holy Spirit wanted me to tell this group of college and career folk, you know, God really loves you. So not to change my message and just scrap that and just talk about God's love, just kind of a little commercial. God loves you. So when I got up to the pulpit, I said, hey, you know what, guys, just before, before I get into my final message, I just really sense the Holy Spirit wants me to just kind of tell you that God loves you, that you are loved. Think of the person that you believe loves you the most. It pales in comparison to how God loves you. And it was just maybe 60 seconds is all I took for that. And as I was just sharing that, what I felt the Holy Spirit was telling me to share, like face after face after face after face after face after face, just tears, just tears. Because that's what they needed to hear at that time. That God loves you. Like you don't have to strive to earn his love. He like, as you are, he loves you. The Holy Spirit communicates to us, with us, through his word, but also through the still, the still small voice. And really this idea of the Holy Spirit communicating and leading the way and directing the mission is really the theme in Acts, that every turning point isn't because clever people figure things out. 
clever people actually slow, dullards, slow to the race, and it's the Holy Spirit that's leading the way from pivot point to pivot point to pivot point. And I think the Holy Spirit is still very much wanting to lead us and direct us, but that his leadership and his direction, it, it's, it, it flows out of a relationship. It's not something we do on the side, like finding the horoscope. Let me open the Bible like a horoscope and see what God has to say. No, no, no. It's a love relationship, and it's within the context of that love, loving, growing relationship that the Holy Spirit leads and directs and speaks and communicates. Lastly, we know that the Holy Spirit is personal because he can be experienced in a personal way, right? He can make sense. He's personal. He can be experienced in a personal way. See, the Holy Spirit is not trapped in the Bible. He inspired the Bible, but the creator of the Bible is not trapped in the pages of the Bible. He transcends scripture. He transcends the scripture that he inspired. He's not trapped in the Bible. He can be experienced personally. When Paul gives these, his benedictions to his letters, Paul will say the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. He's not, he's not wishing uh, some abstract thing onto the churches. He's not, he's not wishing on them some, some uh, just something, some distant ideal. Like he is bestowing on them a reality. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ can be experienced now. The love of God has been, can be experienced now. And the fellowship, the partnership of the Holy Spirit is a real thing. And that fellowship, that partnership can be experienced now. The problem is we often misunderstand the Holy Spirit and we misunderstand the ways and the movings and the promptings of the Holy Spirit and the ways of the Holy Spirit. So how can we experience more of the Holy Spirit? This one I'd like you to turn to. And it's not a verse that you're thinking of. There's no way anybody's thinking of this verse. No way. It's in the book of Proverbs. See, I told you. Book of Proverbs, chapter one. Proverbs chapter one. How can we experience more of the Holy Spirit? Proverbs chapter 1, picking it up in verse 22. How long, you naive ones, will you love simplistic thinking? And how long will scoffers delight themselves in scoffing and fools hate knowledge? And then verse 23, translated literally in the New American Standard, translates the Hebrew very literally, verse 23, turn to my rebuke. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you and I will make my words known to you. Turn to my rebuke. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you and I will make my words known to you. If we want to experience more of the Holy Spirit in our lives, then we have to turn to his rebuke, to his reproof. John 16, one of the functions of the Holy Spirit is to convict us in regards to sin. That's what he does. And so we have to turn to that. It's about embracing repentance, a life of repentance. Repentance is not something that we did to become a Christian and leave it in the back seat or leave it in the rearview mirror. No, like, like the life of, of a growing 
sanctified Christian is a life of repentance, moving forward on repentance, and the Holy Spirit convicts us of this sin, and we turn to his rebuke, confessing that sin, and then embracing God's ideal and God's truth in that matter. So we need to turn to his rebuke. Behold, I'll pour out my spirit on you, and I'll make my words known to you. So we need to actually expect the Holy Spirit to convict us. And he's not doing this because he's a killjoy. He's doing this because he's a lovejoy, because he wants to. His job is to make you like Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. That's what the third person of the Trinity wants most. Well, all the members do. It's to make you like Jesus. And so when he convicts you of sin, of acts, of thoughts, of attitudes, of words, whatever it is, relationships, whatever it is, we need to expect that because if that's not happening, something's wrong. Something has gone deathly wrong. We need to be expecting that and to embrace that and to confess that and to repent. Turn to my rebuke and I'll pour out my spirit on you and I'll make my words known to you. So coming back to A.W. Tozer's comment, right? In the days of the early church, if the Holy Spirit were to suddenly withdraw, 95% of what's going on would cease immediately and virtually everybody would know their loss. So let me ask you a question. If the Holy Spirit were to suddenly withdraw from your life, just suddenly withdraw from your life today, just withdraw, would that really make a difference in your life? Would it really genuinely make a difference or would it be work as usual, no change? It would be play as usual, no change. It would be doing church stuff as usual, practice, rehearsal, memorizing as usual, status quo. Would it be stuff in home, in the neighborhood as usual? Would you know, would you sense his loss? May God give his ears to hear what the Holy Spirit would say to us, what he would show us and give us hearts to respond to his rebuke, to his reproof, so that he would pour out his spirit on us and make his words known to us. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you that uh, you've not left us as orphans. That when Jesus ascended on high, you did not leave us as orphans. That Jesus walked and talked with his disciples, gathering followers and disciples, and was with them for three years. And then when Jesus ascended on high, you did not leave us as orphans, but you poured out your Holy Spirit upon us and gave us, as John says, another counselor, another advocate who is with us and is in us by faith in Jesus. God, forgive us when we endeavor to live the Christian life in our own strength, when we endeavor to do good things, but without any real reference to you, without really trusting uh, in you. Lord, forgive us when we... Um, work towards our own ideals rather than yours. Thank you that your Holy Spirit, one of his 
one of the things he does is to convict us of our sin so that through confession and repentance, the Spirit can, can shape us and form us and fashion us and make us more like Jesus. And so, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would um, grow in us a spirit that would um, be quick to turn to your rebuke and your reproof. And that you would grow in us a repentant heart, quick to repent, so that we could experience more of the Spirit's work and more of the Spirit's power in our lives so that we could be more effective witnesses in the home, in the workplace, in the neighborhoods or wherever we would go. And that all of that would be to the glory of the one true God and even in his son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen.